Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspectives series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema, culture, and society. So let's begin. This is Future Perspectives. Welcome, Aris Komporosos Athanasiou, to the Future Perspectives podcast. It's the official podcast of the Locarno Film Festival. My name is Gabby. You are a sociologist and writer. You're also a professor of sociology at the University College London, where you lead the sociology and social theory research group. You're also an editor at the British Journal of Sociology. Your research explores the rise of new sociological and political imaginaries in the 20th and 21st century capitalism. And your work has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Guardian, Public Seminar, Raw Magazine, amongst others. Plus, you are a book author, which we're going to talk about as well. That is a lot. It is. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Nice to meet you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sociologist and I try to write about all things sociological, but I'm mostly interested in the way in which our economies, especially markets, mm -hmm. so economic systems, economic institutions affect uh, our everyday life and mm -hmm. how people develop ways to work together to express their political voice, their political agency. So I'm interested in how people respond to economic pressures and how economic pressures kind of motivate people to become political. That's mm. kind of the broad spectrum of my and research. Where did this interest and um, curiosity originally come from? Yeah. That so, led you down this path? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I studied economics uh, as an undergraduate student. Uh, which was a very mixed experience. Uh, mostly it left me frustrated with the rigidity of um, economists and especially the way in which training takes place in, within the discipline. So I, I found it very monolithic. I guess it prioritized a very superficial understanding of human beings, very one-dimensional subject as the central figure in all economic models is the kind of rational utility maximizing agent that makes binary decisions yes or no black or white and that dominated all the modeling that goes into the discipline and so on and it left me on the one hand you know economics is so important in our lives but then the way in which we are called to understand it with economic with the tools of the discipline seemed mm. inadequate to me and that frustrated me. So I left that discipline almost entirely. I continued studying uh, sociology and then after my PhD, I um, wanted to go back to some of those economic questions that um, had frustrated me in the first place and examine them from a slightly different perspective. Mm. Well, I would say from a radically different perspective. Mm. So yeah, and that's what that's brought me to, to the book. You said, sociological skills are indispensable. Can you elaborate, please? Well, so with reference to how we view 
so let's say how economics uh, or maybe even how uh, policymakers, politicians often refer to uh, society, to voters, to the needs of the community and so on. Um, there is that superficial monolithic understanding yeah. that I described that economics kind of propagates is often the one that politicians and policymakers tend to adopt as well, right? And yeah. Sorry, I can tell you've lived in the UK for 17 years. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> and I haven't even talked about the, yeah, the yeah. frustration with the, the, that side of things. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I suppose the sociological imagination, if you like, that is an actual term that is, is an interesting one, is uh, developed by uh, C.W. Mills, American sociologist in the 60s. Anyway, what the sociological lens can do is really sort of open up those monolithic understandings of mm. human beings, social mm. beings, that they have social needs, desires, and that these are very uh, uh, imaginative, and so they cannot be put in uh, those neat boxes that mm. often uh, mainstream politics and economics tends to be putting them. Yeah, I think sometimes empathy gets lost, mm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Zooming out if you yeah. are in one of these political heads, shall we say. Or, or if I may say so, I'm sorry, empathy is lost or when it's evoked, it's kind of, um, this is done in a way that uh, almost opportunistically, right, or, or in a kind of cheap way. But empathy mm. is such a rich uh, emotion. A and there is politics of empathy, you know, we, we organize, we take collective action because we empathize with those around us and we yeah. want to improve their lives. So yeah. Yeah. that's all the kind of empathy that you often get in mainstream politics, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Global transformation, different types of crisis, conflicts and tensions. How does sociology aid in tackling these major challenges? So sociologists, like all other academics, um, are also guilty of um, theorizing from a distance, kind of uh, armchair, kind of intellectual mm. uh, life. Um, so it's a bit difficult to speak of a solution that comes from the intellectual, whatever you want to call it, academic. Yeah progressive thinking. I, I guess, you know, what I can speak about myself and the kind of kind of sociology that inspires me. And I mean, as a sociologist, what I hope to be doing is um, offering new perspectives on existing problems. And I guess, personally, the kind of sociology that, that I think can be most effective and most useful is the sociology that takes the lens away from the sort of top-down analysis of a problem. So let's say, you know, uh, I don't know, housing policy, you know, in, uh, and so, you know, you can look at housing policy from a detached perspective on balancing different factors to do with the real estate market and uh, the kind of inequalities, uh, homelessness rates, uh, available housing stock and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I suppose the kind of sociology that I subscribe to would invite us to move the lens towards the voices of those that are habitually excluded from these discussions altogether and mm -hmm. to workshop and to open conversations that allow us to, you know, to give see, them a voice. To give them a voice, but also to work towards solutions, not just to kind of tokenistically 
uh, you know, do go around and ask some questions and leave, but to uh, work with them mm. to see what solutions fit them. And yeah, I think sociology has a big role to play in that because it has uh, the way, it, 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 I think it can offer openings, like I said, and it can, can sensitize us to this kind of spaces that those communities inhabit. And, mm. uh, and you know, their understandings, how they arrive at their understandings, their experiences of, say, inequality, poverty. And so, yeah, that's the kind of sociology that I suppose I, I think can be most uh, useful. Experiencing the Locarno Film Festival and just even learning about it, these filmmakers from all over the world, I think certainly some of them that I've spoken to over the past week, they are doing a great job at giving voices to some of these stories as well. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, are you an author of three books? Uh so I'm a, I'm a single author of one book. I've contributed to other books, but uh, my, the, the book I wrote myself has just come out this year. Start of yeah. the year, speculative communities living with uncertainty in a financialized world. So it, it deals with a couple of questions that I think are in many people's minds. One is about the kind of radical uncertainty that seems to dominate all aspects of our lives in the current moment, mm. in the sense of political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, you know, a sense of work insecurity. Mm. Um, environmental. Environmental, of course. Mm. Uh, so, you know, all this, there are all these open questions about our future, which I think looks quite, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of pessimism around and for a good reason. Things, our capacity to predict and carve out a sort of path towards a safe, secure future seems to have been undermined quite severely. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think intuitively we can all understand that, we can all feel mm -hmm. uh, this sense of volatility, uncertainty. Um, of course, I should say that not everyone experiences that in the same way. This is a skewed, there's an asymmetry there. Yeah. Uh, some of us are better have more access to resources that yeah. we can use to, you know, secure ourselves against this uncertainty. Others yeah. are just left in the middle of the storm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to know what you think about the role that the press plays in this kind of fear mongering mm. as well, because like you said, mm. there's a lot of pessimism and, and mm. rightly so. It's a challenging time for mm. a lot of people. But do you think that's amplified too much mm. by media? Yeah, I think media has a role to play in this. It's a complex role. So uh, in the book, for example, I talk about Brexit and um, I have my own take on what happened there and, and on the role of the media. So, uh, I mean, I should say, I should preface this by saying, you know, I, 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 I was extremely disappointed by the whole, uh, I mean, the outcome and, and what that meant for mm. me as a dual citizen living in the country. Yeah. But... There's something about what you just said, the fear mongering and the, that there's no solution, that the chaos will ensue if one acts in a certain way, if one votes a certain way. I think that actually backfired in the, in the sense that progressive forces had aligned uh, in the Brexit referendum for uh, against Brexit. Mm. There was something in the tone of the debate that backfired quite uh, catastrophically, I, I think. And to me, that shows that people, because we live with so much uncertainty, people are less 
afraid in a way of an uncertain future. They're more willing to take greater risks. And that's kind of one of the theses of the book that we become more and more what I call speculative communities. So the way in which we kind of come together, like I was saying earlier, I'm interested in how people kind of come together to express their political views and act. Mm. And the way in which people do this today is more and more not around a kind of nice narrative of, you know, we'll all do it for an improved, I don't know, education or a better quality of life, because it kind of feels that it's all lost and the, the future is just dark and volatile. So people increasingly uh, act in ways that accept that and embrace it. And then their political choices are kind of more, become more radical, not always in the right ways. I mean, I, I think the Brexit vote was a bad vote, but what warned there was a narrative that didn't play with the fear mongering. The Brexiteers were saying, sure, we'll get out of Europe, we'll do it. How? We don't know, but we'll do it. Let's take that risk together. And that kind of uh, worked um, in this kind of climate. A bit more about the book, Speculative Communities, Living with Uncertainty in a Financialized World. What else have you researched and discovered? I want a few yeah. more nuggets. Yeah, yeah, we took too much about Brexit, maybe. Yeah. I mean, and the book yeah. isn't really, that's just one example. But yeah, so maybe I can I can say what, what the other key phenomenon that interests me uh, is the, the, the that of um, our use of new technologies, our use of social media, mm -hmm. and especially the younger generation's in interaction and engagement with mm -hmm. media like... Uh, sort of TikTok and Instagram, but also slightly more obscure uh, media like astrology apps. I don't know how much you know about the... I have some, yeah. Ah, very good. <laughs> CoStar or what? Yeah. So, and also dating apps. So these, so I'm very interested in all these interfaces that uh, we kind of day-to-day -day interact with. And I guess what, I, what interests me about them is that... We live in this environment of uncertainty and often we hear that, oh, you know, uh, folks turn to certain, let's say, to dating apps to give them a solution that is yeah. a partner, some, you know, emotional, romantic right. kind of fulfillment yeah. Yeah. or astrology apps because, you know, they expect answers about that future. Yes. But my thesis is that uh, they don't actually do that. And not only these apps don't offer that, but... Yeah we as users don't even expect those apps to offer us solutions. Rather, what we like about them is that they sort of, it's almost like they're mirrors that we put them in front of us. And in those mirrors, we see all this dark, volatile uncertainty of the world that we already experience. So they're kind of familiar in a way, and they're kind of cozy. So there's something about our yeah, I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. No, or... it absolutely does. I'm smiling because it's making me think of a, um, an interview I had with a guy called Max Strom, who's American, um, but lives in the Netherlands now. And he has spent years researching happiness and connection. Mm. And he actually wrote a book called There Is No App for Happiness. Mm. And he said to me, and I've always remembered it, we're in a world now where we're more connected than mm -hmm. ever through technology, through so social media but we're actually less connected because of it and in mm. terms of the, the sort of tribal community. Mm -hmm. And it's having repercussions, mm. certainly involving mental health. And mm. I'm just bringing that up because, again, thinking on a societal level, mm -hmm. yeah. Certainly. And there is something... So there's definitely 
something that all those technologies are doing in how we understand uh, ourselves, uh, but also what communities look like. And so what I call speculative communities, I intentionally, I'm not talking in the book about the new speculative individual, uh, but about a community, because again, I'm being a bit polemical here, but I'm going a bit against the grain in suggesting that, okay, we know about the negative effects of all those apps. Yes, to some degree, they individualize us. Yes, we spend more time in dark rooms, holding our phones, looking down, swiping and scrolling. But I am a little bit more optimistic here. So I would like to kind of, forget, again, take the sociological lens mm -hmm. towards which kinds of relationships, communities are being developed through all these apps. So is it true? Are we completely losing the social element through these apps? And here in the book, I'm kind of looking at how uh, some of some I'm looking at some historical examples of how people have come together through technologies. Yeah. And I'm suggesting that sometimes people do tend to come together in those different ways that might not seem to be what we expect a community to look like, but there's mm. still a community. And so uh, just to give you an example of this, in, in the book, I, uh, I bring in the work of Benedict Anderson, who wrote 40, 50 years ago, this uh, work called Imagined Communities. And this is a very important work because it basically tells us that nation states, the idea of a national identity, it appeared when the print press was invented and then there was the daily newspaper and the novel available to everyone. So that was the first time that language was conveyed through technologies. So the everyday person would read the newspaper and turn the page and Anderson tells us in the turn of the page, he or she would imagine that a million other people like him or her would also mm -hmm. turn the page. And that imagined community is what invested the nation with its importance. So, you know, I'm, I'm Greek, not because, you know, I have a passport, but because I imagined that community. And that is a very real, palpable, and, and, and so just to say speculative community, you know, the community yeah. of astrology, app followers, and Tinder followers, and Instagram TikTokers, yeah. and so on, yeah. it's not completely fantasy, it's yeah. imagined. And so there is something to that community. So I, th yeah. I think we ought to look at it as such and not as non-existent. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, it's, it's bringing together like-minded souls in terms of um you know avant-garde cinema i'm sure there's some kind of facebook group where people can you know share stories and movies and 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 you couldn't do that in person if you're in mm -hmm. different pockets of the world mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i could talk more about that but i'm <laughs> going to ask you about your current book project mm. tentatively titled real fake yep this is an intellectual history of conspiracy politics and distortion technologies in finance capitalism. Mm, yeah, another, uh, these subtitles are very uh, long. But like my first name is easy, the second name, the surname is <laughs> difficult. Same with my book titles. Right, right, right. So what's the inspiration behind this one and, and when can we receive it? Mm, yeah, so it kind of picks up from where the my first book uh, left uh, off and um, it's it's about another aspect of our contemporary reality, which is it's kind of fakeness or it, this distinct feeling. If on the one hand we feel that everything feels quite uncertain, mm. increasingly I would say we also feel everything, you know, you can't 
tell what's a lie from truth, what's real, what's not. What's and got a filter on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What's distorted or not. You know, the idea of distortion really interests me here. So obviously the most regressive and concerning manifestation of this inability to tell what's true from what's not is in politics and I would say in, in, in a very alarming kind of conspiratorial uh, type of politics, the kind of QAnon conspiracies, you know, the COVID deniers, the, uh, you know, climate change deniers, you know, mm. but these are very dangerous conspiracy ideas that are not just ideas, they are to link to my to my first book, there are communities of people yeah. that uh, co coalesce around those ideas and and they find a, an identity in those and then they pursue it politically, which is very uh, dangerous, right? Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of I'm interested in these in these formations and um, again, uh, my interest, as I, as I said in the beginning, is always to do with what does this have to do also with our political and economic system, you know, how does capitalism the, uh, and market-oriented capitalism intervene in those uh, debates around what's true and what's not? And wow. because markets are fascinating worlds and I'll tell you, they don't really care about truth or fact or fiction or lies. They care about opportunities for, for value, for uh, that is mon monetizing uh, opportunities. and. Mm -hmm. There's a fascinating way uh, in which uh, traders use technologies to uh, influence perceptions and influence price movements. And, and, and that world, I think, we don't really understand very well. I know I don't. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and again, I mean, uh, I studied economics and still it's a bit of a black box. And it's a dangerous black box because it affects our lives, but we can't quite grasp how. And... So there is uh, basically what this new book tries to do is look at how distortion, mm. that is a, a principle of uh, tempering with reality, mm. how how that is used in markets uh, to, to generate profit, uh, and then how it's used in politics, uh, opportunistically again, in conspiracy worlds, in kind of the populist politics of, you know, the Trump and some of the Brexiteers. Again, I'm being a bit provocative here because my argument in, in this new work isn't that what we need in response to this fakeness is show everyone what reality is. Like if only we could just explain all the truths to all those stupid people that don't get it, then mm -hmm. new progressive politics will prevail. I think that's also a bit of a myth. I don't think, you know, the truth isn't as simple a matter of simply breaking it down into facts and conveying it all. And then ooh, the QAnon people will see the light and change their minds and, and so on. Yeah. So the claim I make in the book is that we need to work with distortion. I distinguish between deception, which is a malevolent misguiding of folks for an agenda, and distortion, which can also be working, I claim in the book, uh, working with a, a reality that is maybe difficult to fully grasp, to fully capture, and that includes some fictions as well. It includes myths that inspire people, but they can be progressive myths, stories, narratives that mm -hmm. can, uh, you know, art. Art is part, you know, is art, uh, art has a huge role to play in offering people more hopeful narratives that can inspire them mm -hmm. and motivate them to 
participate in politics to uh, to make the decisions that will improve their lives. Mm, absolutely. Can we talk about the attention economy? The attention economy is the collective human capacity to engage with the many elements in our environment that demand mental focus. The term reflects an acknowledgement that the human capacity for attention is limited and that the content and events competing for our attention are much bigger than our capacity to pay attention. Yeah. Yowzers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, it's... Yeah, I guess this is all true, isn't it? I mean, it kind of dovetails with uh, what we've been talking about on issues of uncertainty, unreality. Uh, I, I, th there's something about, again, you know, this our interaction with the world around us that feels fragmented. Mm. And, and I think, you know, the, the interfaces we were talking about earlier, you know, social media and... Um, all these apps there is something about uh, the temporality of those mm. it's all very ephemeral isn't it you know the uh, how many seconds is an instagram story like 10 seconds or something 16 yeah yeah mm -hmm. you might oh you're Maybe. more of an instagram user than me <laughs> yeah i think the average time spent on a page is eight seconds on social media yeah yeah so you know what kind of uh, like, what is the meaning of attention? So does that correspond to our capacity to focus on absorbing an idea, on making an interaction? Is eight seconds all we have, really, or are we capable of? I don't think so. I, I, again, you know, you'll find me a bit skeptical on the easy criticisms of the big ills of our time you know we cannot focus okay there's yeah. a lot mm. competing for our attention though because if you think about being on your phone and uh, <laughs> you know scrolling or whatever then how many adverts pop up and yeah you know it's that um, digital footprint that follows you around so totally. you're reading something and then you're having to mm. like delete the the adverts and yeah and that's the same in streaming platforms as well. The founder of Netflix proclaimed that the company's main competition was mm. sleep. Yeah. So there's an always on mentality, isn't there? Mm. And surely that's got to hinder attention span because I think it's just like now we put things on in the background, don't we? And we're probably missing really good art mm. by it just being mm -hmm. that kind of white noise. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So I think on one level, this is absolutely true and it, it, look it's an important discussion to be had uh who's benefiting from this fragmentation of our attention span and um you know who cultivates these ways of uh you know inserting adverts and and uh, monetizing opportunities through algorithms that guide us to a million different places mm. every hour of the day and yeah i mean i think there are clear answers to those questions you know i mean there are a number of companies and billionaires behind them and you know the silicon valley and mm. you know loose regulation that has uh, meant that these worlds of fragmentation have dominated our lives and certainly that's not a reality that I, have, I would have chosen to find myself in, but mm. here we are in that reality. And so my, I guess my, what I'm trying to work with here is answers to that predicament mm. that are not simply telling us, okay, then switch off your phone and go back to sleep or go out in the countryside and that's it. Because 
you know, can we really do that? Is that a sustainable way to move forward to say, you know, put the phone down? So that's, yeah, that's a really good point because there's been a rise in like mindfulness and meditation, mm. and certainly for me, I've become extremely passionate about yoga since mm. the start of the mm -hmm. pandemic. And mm -hmm. do you think this is a retaliation to all of the competition for our mm -hmm. attention at all times? Yep, it is, and I, I think that's great, and I, I do it myself, and I certainly think there is value in carving out space that switching is, off. Is, yes, for sure. So. But I guess what I want to say, though, is that if if we're looking for, let's say, effective answers in the long term, I think a mere rebalancing of our time isn't enough. What I would say we need to do is to also make the most out of those spaces that we inhabit in our lives, uh, in social media and in all the apps that we use. So wh wh what do I mean by that? And here is, uh, I guess, my my take on attention and the politics of attention. Mm. So there is something about uh, our immersion in those technologies that I think can also be turned to into something good. So mm. mm -hmm. they so okay, they take our focus away from something, but they also focus us. That like it's a different kind of focus. So that's how I want to I, I, I want to invite us to also see the possibilities of that. So if we are all focused, I mean there are very we talked about communities earlier. There are people that use, you know, in the video gaming communities and that you know, they use Twitch and they use, uh, uh, they have these very sophisticated technological methods of interacting that if we look at them from the outside, they seem quite chaotic and quite dizzying, right? Like, yeah. um, but they work and they create communities. And actually in the event, there are uh, some contributors, artists and folks that come from the video game communities with very radical progressive politics who utilize those those fragmented spaces to actually get come together. Mm -hmm. So. My point here is that, you know, to put it like revolutions, for example, in politics, they happen in a moment, in a moment of focus, not over a very long time. So there is some there is some radical potential in those in that condensed, fragmented time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not always easy to see it. And, all, and what tends to happen is uh, our, our attention is monetized for the Silicon Valley uh, people. So is attention mm. therefore regarded as more or less valuable than money? Wow, well, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, I guess attention in attention for the likes of Netflix and Amazon and you know, YouTube is money, right? I mean, it's, it's advertising money, streams of money. This is all how uh, it works. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation it, it then, is, isn't it? It is. But I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is these money streams and the advertising is blended in the content we develop and we consume. Mm -hmm. So there's something about working this muscle of attention, not to just focus on lengthier um, uh, like narratives or, or time spans, mm -hmm. but on doing the most of, you know, the gamers that I talked about earlier, you know, they, they playing together, you know, there's the, some, something that they do with this. Or, or art, you know, art creates narratives that are not necessarily sort of uh, narratives that invite our attention, you know, figurative art, you know, in a beautiful painting, uh, uh, landscape painting or figurative. It, it takes our attention and time to appreciate and so on. And, but there is a form of arts that try to kind of break and fragment representation mm -hmm. in a way that looks 
engaging and invites our attention, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in those different ways. So mm -hmm. we can maybe we can work with fragmented attention if only we navigate it kind of together. That's that's I suppose my argument. I don't know mm -hmm. how convincing it is, but. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Twitch and you were one of 24 guests that did a live stream at the 2022 Locarno Film Festival talking about attention as a practice. So attention is the first step in the learning process. It mm. allows us to plan or preview and monitor and regulate our thoughts and actions. So mm. what did you talk about as part of um, this project with the Locarno Film Festival? Mm. I think here I would probably answer what I just discussed, you know, uh, what was great about uh, my participation in that event was that uh, the event itself invited very different people from very different backgrounds to speak about the attention, its practice, its politics. And this is what I found really exciting that uh, my own musings about uh, how we need to work with fragmented attention and not completely escape it and aim for an ideal focus, a kind of meditative focus. Mm. It was a great experience because it gave me the opportunity to see how folks actually practice those things, how they try to work with them in their artistic practices, in how to, they try to produce images. Um, the collective is called Total Refusal, by the way, I was talking about earlier, and they produce this amazing uh, video games environments that are kind of turning the idea of the shoot-up individual game to its head, and they try to create peace. For me, this, this stuff is amazing, and so what that event was great for was to arrive at what our workshopping with attention can look like from at the level of ideas, at the level of practice, at the level of representation, image. That's what I found the most, uh, the richest part of the event. Really interesting. Well, you've certainly held my attention for this conversation, <laughs> Aris. So there's only one thing left to do. And thank you so much. Let's roll your closing credits. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? So that would be the, a movie called The Travelling Players by the Greek film director Theo Angelopoulos. So what I love about the film, it was filmed in the 1970s, either in the middle or right after the dictatorship years in Greece, so in a, uh, at the time of political turmoil. And it really tried to do something amazing that I think the, the art that I love is good at doing, which is it created a very poetic representation of a political community. So it was a political, it had a political ambition, mm -hmm. uh, but it had at its, at its, uh, its lens was focused on artists. So th there were multiple layers in the film. So mm -hmm. it was a bunch of artists, uh, actors traveling around uh, a country uh, in Greece that was divided politically and trying to make art. And yeah, it, it's mm -hmm. an amazing film. I invite you all to, to see it. It's, it's really wonderful. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself with your friends, what movie would you like to watch on the big screen? So I would say The Travelling Players would be a really great film to show. And if not that, then I would love to use it for something much more experimental, maybe like something like my co-presenters in the event, Total Refusal. Their images of video games is like chaotic, but quite mm -hmm. fascinating. Uh, so to, it'd be great to see how a few thousand people 
in that setting would react to that kind of image, um, what they would make of it. Is today's art shaping society as it should? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a tough one to answer. I would say no, but is art's role to shape society? I mean, art responds and contributes to our understanding of society. I think, you know, we shouldn't ask of art to do things that it's it can't really do. But um, yeah, that would be mm. my answer. What could art and cinema do to improve people's lives? Um, there, I think art has a huge role to play. I think art can uh, bring people together. Uh, art can offer alternative images, representations, narratives, fictions, ideas that we don't have access to otherwise through, you know, our other aspects of our lives. And so yeah, I mean, art can do a great deal of those things. It can bring us closer to, you know, nature, the environment. I, uh, I think art is a very important aspect of our lives for that reason. If you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, yeah. what would it be and who would you give it to? Sometimes film production involves uh, discussion of ideas and, you know, with like intellectuals and so on. So, you know, if, if, if any directors out there would like to invite me to discuss uh, ideas behind the film and then give you an award for it, I would happily take it. I love that <laughs> idea. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? Ooh. Yes, I mean, I think cinema and culture are faced with the same challenges as all, everyone else, right? I mean, we live in such a huge turmoil, political, economic, environmental. And so on the one hand, they're faced with a struggle for financing and resources, which are finite and, and withdrawn from public uh, yeah. institutions. <laughs> Finances comes up a lot in answer yeah. to this question. Yeah, for mm. sure. And and yeah, and they, on the other hand, they struggle for new ways of adapting to that reality, right? Those would be the challenges. Uh, mm -hmm. Not easy to overcome. No. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? I haven't got much experience of attending film festivals, but I really like Locarno and uh, I have enjoyed how welcome I felt as a kind of outsider not involved in film. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that film festivals in the future uh, do have that openness that I have uh, experienced here, uh, that they're not kind of part of an elite kind of a, uh, a clique that is kind of just a very inward yeah. Um, yeah. Space. Which you would kind of expect, wouldn't you, until you yeah. experience one, I think. Yeah. yeah. Last question. As the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to say to this that I feel free only to the extent that those around me and those that I care about also feel free. I think freedom has great value when it's seen not as an individual uh, thing, but as something that is for a collective, mm. for, for the many. So that's what I would say. Thank you again. Thank this you. This has been so fascinating. Thanks a lot for having me. it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.